These are the kind of weeks that cause us to want to wrap arms of love around one another. But they're also the kind of events, the kind of trouble that caused us to long for God's much better future, don't they? It isn't supposed to be like this. We long for the time when, Lord, will the kingdoms of this world actually become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ? When will the Prince of Peace truly bring his peace, not only into our hearts, not only into our relationship with God, but also to bring his peace into all of our experiences and relationships. We long for that. We need that. We're going to be this morning, there's an outline in the back of your bulletin for Micah chapter 5, or the first few verses there. That's what we'll be. But first, um, as we move in that direction, I want to pause and consider the magi, those wise men who came from the east to Jerusalem. We tend to think of the Magi's interest in Christ's birth as merely an astrological curiosity. We saw something in the heavens. We saw this star. It seems to indicate that something big is happening in the world. Could they possibly know just how big? So they come to Jerusalem. Maybe we think they come to Jerusalem as as some sort of Well, they're like wealthy world travelers who are chasing down the latest must-see sight. But what if these men are also wise to know not only the things of ancient writings and the, the, uh, the movement of the stars in the heavens, but what if they're also wise to know the true emptiness of humanity when we're separated from God and His purposes? What if they also actually hoped in those prophecies given to Daniel in Babylon? That God's king would come and establish his kingdom, which would fill the whole earth and never end. What if they believed the promise that God's king would actually put an end to sin and would bring in everlasting righteousness, the way things are supposed to be? What if they came not with a wealthy man's idle curiosity, but what if they came with a poor man's desperation and longing? Could what God had said be really happening? Could they have known that, understood that at all? Well, those prophecies given through Daniel were given in Babylon, were given at the beginning of the Persian Empire. They were giving, given in the East, where these wise sages come from. And as I mentioned, they're not just students of the stars. They are scholars of the writings, gathering wisdom where they could find it. If, if anyone from the East would still recall those words given to Daniel... It would be these magi. Maybe, maybe they are not unlike us. Maybe their longing and our longing is like Israel's longing. And the the prophet Micah captures that. 
Now, I need to pause here for a minute without getting too sidetracked into too many details and turning this into Old Testament overview. I want to introduce to you the prophet Micah because the prophet Micah does capture a theme. He speaks at the, at the same time as Isaiah. He speaks 700 years ago, yet he tells us something very specific. While Isaiah was what's called a court prophet, Isaiah speaks to kings, Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, he speaks to Hezekiah. But Micah was a prophet to the people. Micah speaks to the nation as a whole. And Micah tells them in an elaborate prophetic poem in chapters 1 through 4, and I mention that because we're going to start in chapter 5. Well, in chapters 1 through 4, there's an elaborate prophetic poem that states that because of sin, God's people will endure hardship. There will be trouble and brokenness, but that God will intervene and will restore what has been lost to his intended rightness. God is going to do that. Because of sin, we will have trouble, but God's restoration is coming. That's Micah chapter 1 through 4. Because of sin, we will have trouble, but God's restoration is coming. God is going to intervene. And then in Micah chapter 5, he gives us some specifics about God's Savior who does restore us. Where will he come from? Where, where will we expect to see him? That specific detail is given in chapter 5. Now, now Micah chapter 5 begins with a statement that gathers up all of the realities of chapters 1 to 4. It's a summary statement. In fact, in, your, in, the, in a Hebrew Bible, this is the very last line of Micah chapter 4. But I think it's fitting that it starts chapter 5 because it sets up the promise. The promise, the, the brightness of the jewel's fire is captured in the rudeness of the setting in which it is set. The, the, the light is seen all the more brightly against the dark background. And so... Micah chapter 5 and verse 1 gathers that up. He begins with a statement that gathers the reality of humanity's vulnerability as far as our own inability to protect or to preserve ourselves. It sounds hopeless if it ended there, but it does not. Chapter 5, he says, Now then, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Micah is speaking to Jerusalem. He's speaking to God's people that their city is going to be surrounded. It is going to be under siege. They should muster their troops. They, could, they should call up the militia. They should put the archers on the ramparts of the wall. They should do everything they can, but it will not be enough. Babylon will surround the city, and the city will be taken. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The last king in Jerusalem is a man named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was not really a fully legitimate king. Zedekiah was actually installed by Babylon. He was their puppet king, only he decided he didn't want to be a puppet anymore. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to keep those, those taxes he was sending off to Babylon. He wanted to keep those for himself. And so Babylon came asking for them. Well, not asking, really. And it says, the, the prophet here, looking well ahead into the future, the prophet says, uh, he doesn't even call Zedekiah a king. He calls him ruler. 
the judge. They will strike the ruler or judge of Israel on the cheek that, that Jerusalem's king is going to be humbled. Siege will be laid against us. Do what you can, Jerusalem. But God, because of our sin, God's people are going to have trouble until God's restoration comes. We do what we can, and so we should. Do what you can, Jerusalem, but it won't be enough. That's verse 1. We do what we can, but it won't be enough. We are still mortal. We're subject to death sooner or later. It'll catch up with us. And there we would be left if it were not for God intervening. But God does intervene. Just as he promised long ago, a promise that perhaps, I think, I suspect that those magi actually believed. They didn't have Micah, but they had Daniel. And so they come in desperate hope. If this is the time, then where's the place? And so seeing the star they come to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 1 or verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose in the east and we have come to worship him. Well, Herod hears this. And Herod and all of Jerusalem are in turmoil. Herod's in turmoil because he has no intention of yielding to God. He fully intends to preserve his own ambitions over God's purposes. The rest of, of Jerusalem is in turmoil because they, they know that Herod will stop at nothing to preserve his own empire and his own dynasty to pass on to his own sons rather than any king that God would bring. And so, Herod inquires of the scribes the students of the scripture, where is the Messiah to be born? Where will the Christ come? And they tell him in verse 5, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophet, parentheses, Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. From Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem, the least little place, Bethlehem. You see what God is doing in Micah chapter 5. Now turn from Matthew back to Micah again. Because God turns his attention from Jerusalem, which is going to try as hard as they can. Do what you can, but it won't be enough. And God turns his attention to within the little village of Bethlehem. And he says, but you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You hardly get a mention, little Bethlehem, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. You see, when, they, when the scribes quote this, they actually describe Bethlehem as by no means the least because of this promise. This promise makes little Bethlehem great. But by, by saying now that Bethlehem is by no means the least, they also hide something else. That out of little, God does much. That out of the least, God seems to do his most. That we will do what we can in the midst of the troubles of life. We will do what we can, but it won't be enough. 
If it stopped there, that'd be misery. But it doesn't stop there. That God will do more than we would expect. That's the message of Bethlehem. Little Bethlehem, though you are little, from little Bethlehem, God's great ruler will come. If you were to visit Israel today, one of the stops you would probably want to make is Bethlehem. You want to see Bethlehem. I almost begrudgingly will take people to the Church of the Nativity. It is the old, oldest Christian church known in the world, but oftentimes it is packed full of people that you can hardly see anything. I'd rather go to the shepherd's fields. And whether it's the exact place of the fields that night and to imagine that angelic announcement out there in the open area and to think of those shepherds, the least of the society of their day, who were first given the most, who were first given the good news, that God will do far more than we expect. God turns away from strong and proud Jerusalem with its walls and its ramparts and its archers arrayed against the siege, which they cannot stop. And he turns instead to little Bethlehem. And he says, I'm going to do my work through you. God has a pattern that way, doesn't he? Think about the second born so often being chosen over the first. Remember, it's Isaac instead of Ishmael. It's, it's Jacob instead of Esau. And it's not because Jacob has greater capacity or greater integrity than Esau. Think of Gideon. Gideon is raised up to, to be God's agent to deliver Israel from this Midianite invasion. And the land is crawling with soldiers, 120,000 of them. And, and so Gideon gets an army of 30,000. It's a one to four odds. What chance could he have? And God says, ah, got too many there. They're going to think you're a brilliant strategist. Let's, let's sort these out a little bit. Ask whoever wants to go home. They can just go home. And two-thirds of them do. Gideon's left with 10,000. Well, that should do. God says, ah, we got too many. You're going to get the credit instead of me. Let's whittle it down again. And Gideon's left with 300. And those are the ones that God uses Think of, think, of, think of Ehu, the left-handed judge. And yes, left-handed people were, were left out in that society for reasons I won't even go into. Think of Ruth the Moabitess, the one who is perhaps singularly the bright light in the midst of the darkest days of the judges. There's this Moabite woman who says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And from her, this singular woman of faith well, King David is going to come from her. Greater than that, Jesus himself is going to come from her family tree. David, speaking of David, the greatest king of Israel, out of the least comes the greatest. You know, when Samuel comes knocking on David's father's door, he's looking for the one that God has sent him to anoint as the next king in Israel, and David is not even home. His dad knew Samuel was coming, and he's got all of his other boys there, seven of them, and they're, they're good, strong candidates. Surely one of them is going to make a great king. Little, young, scrawny David, he's still out with the sheep. And Samuel looks at these, and they're fine candidates. One of them surely must do, but no, God has not chosen that one or that one or that one or that one, none of them. And Samuel's confused. He says, do you have any other sons? Well, I've got little David. He's... He's, he's the youngest. He's, he's still out tending the sheep. And, 
He's just the redheaded kid. You want David? Bring him. And David is the one because that's what God does. What would God do, you wonder, with someone like me? Well, don't worry. God uses the weak to confound the strong. God uses the foolish to to confound the wise. What would God do with a church like us? Here, really, of all places. I remember, what would God do in an out-of-the-way place? I remember when we, when we served overseas in missions, we, 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 we found out we were going to the country of Swaziland. First thing we had to do was get a map out and find out, well, where is the country of Swaziland? It's this outstanding place, a little tiny country, tucked under the side of South Africa with about a million people and a million cows and a radio station. And five high-power transmitters all morning and all evening would send out the gospel in 40-some different languages to places like Mozambique and Angola where nobody could go because of the civil wars and as far away as Pakistan. We got all kinds of response to the gospel from those radio broadcasts from this little place of Swaziland that nobody ever heard of. It is what God does with what seems small which makes Bethlehem by no means the least. It's not about Bethlehem. It's about the God of Bethlehem. It's about the God of Brush Prairie. It's not about you or me. It's about our great God and Savior. The least are not too little for God to make much of. We'll do our best But it won't be enough. It can't be enough. We cannot solve the problem humanity faces, though God wondrously works in us and through us to alleviate trouble and misery along the way. But it won't be enough. But God will do more than enough. God will do more than we would expect. Out of you, Bethlehem, too little will come much. The one who's going forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until a time. God may seem far off for now until the time. He will give up his people until the time when she was in labor has given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That verse 3, we think of that in terms of the, of, of the nativity, Right? When she who is in labor gives birth, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, but that's probably not the main meaning here. There might be an intended prophetic double entendre, a double meaning. There's actually, there's something about that, but the main point is actually this. It's about the trouble that Israel goes through that culminates in this greatest time of trouble on the earth, the great tribulation, and then God pours out his spirit in the midst of that, towards the end of that time of horrible judgment. Hell on earth. And they will, Zechariah the prophet says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns an only son. Yeah, God's only son. He will give them up, it says. God giving up his precious Israel until, until. God draws a line. God says, this far, it's all I can take. Now is the time I step in and restore. God may seem far off for now. He will give them up until. Israel will be troubled and in travail before his rule, just as that Micah pattern in the first four chapters bears out. 
They don't yet realize what it is that God is doing. But God is doing. That's the point. God is at work even when we don't yet see it. God is at work to rescue them from their own self-entrapment. Faith is believing God's promises for what we don't yet see. Faith is believing until. Not forever. Just until. The trouble continues for a time until. And our Lord, our Lord will come to restore his own. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. I like that part. Sometimes the little words are the big ones, aren't they? Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen, but it will be seen. It will be seen. That which you long for, that which you hope for, that which is not yet right, will be right by His working. We do not always see what God is doing in our own circumstances, but if we trust His promises, if we trust that God is in fact working, we know that He is doing for us. That's why we pray with thanksgiving. Remember that little verse in Philippians chapter 4, in everything, by prayer and supplication, asking God for his help, with thanksgiving, the thanksgiving that God hears us and God helps us in the midst of his trouble, I believe that by faith, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, it's beyond our logic or reason, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We do not always see God working, but with prayer, with thanksgiving that leads to peace that guards our hearts because we trust that though God may seem far off for now, He who came before is coming again. That's the beauty of the Advent season. We remember two things at once. We remember his first coming. We celebrate nativity. And we look forward to his second coming. We anticipate majesty. Those are rolled up together in this Advent season. He who came before is coming again. When Israel does return to faith, he will stand and be their shepherd. Look at Micah 5, verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There will be no limit to his reign. The one of whom Pilate put up a sign that said, King of the Jews will be king of the world. He will be king of kings and lord of of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace, the peace from fear and danger, conflict and conquest. He says, this one will be great. Do you remember that line those verses, the center of Philippians, I think it's the essential core of the book of Philippians where it says, Christian, you want to follow Jesus? Have this mind, have this viewpoint, have this outlook in yourselves, which was also Jesus' outlook. 
Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, he is God, and yet he did not consider, he did not consider his privileges something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself and became, came in the form of humanity. He became, founding in the form as a man, he became obedient, even to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So, therefore, God has highly exalted him, made him great. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But wait, we don't see that yet. When was the last time at Esther Short Park or at Pioneer Square You saw every knee bowed and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. If I go down to Westfield Mall where they're celebrating Christmas gloriously this time of year, I will not see that probably much, will I? But we will. That's what it says. God has given him a name that is above every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This one will be great. Out of the least, God will do his best. He will be their peace from danger, from conflict, from conquering. He will be peace from God that gives security and joy. No more need for false confidences. No more need for false fulfillments to trying to to fill ourselves up with something else because the stuff of life is just not enough. It's not meant to be enough. We will not be complete until we find our completion in Him. That's where we look for it. That's where we find it. What is it that worries you today? What is it that for you makes God seem far off? This passage reminds us that it's okay for it to feel that way. Because we're not there yet. He has not returned yet. What is it? that worries you, that causes you anxiety, that gives you trouble. I I have to confess, over the last several months, since we bought the tickets, we made the plans, we reserved a place to stay together where we would have all four kids and their families together and they'd be able to see their grandfather after Christmas. They're they're actually, yeah, the kid's grandfather, the grandkid's great-grandfather, Julie's dad, we had, we had this one, it's going to be a wonderful plan, it's going to be a wonderful time. But I had this nagging thing in my head. Something's going to happen to mess this up. Something's going to happen in the travel plans or this, or something is going to happen. And then just the week before they're supposed to start, depart, there's this word about this new variant in South Africa. And it's making people nervous. And then, then the, the flights, the British Air flights, the tickets that they held, the British Air flights, all of them out of Southern Africa are canceled. And, and people are scrambling. And I'm thinking in my head, what if we got them 
a different direction instead of going to London because London is closed? What if we got them maybe through Dubai on Emirates or some other? We got another ticket, and there were still tickets available. They would, in the coming hours, they would double and triple and quadruple, but there were still tickets available. And I kind of wanted to jump on that. Do what you can. <laughs> it won't be enough. Because it wasn't long after that. And God just told me, Bob, just, just peace, 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 trust, wait. And as I waited, United States closed. And then there came this announcement that nobody but citizens is getting in, and my son-in-law is not one of those. Well, he's a citizen of Zimbabwe, but apparently that doesn't, didn't count any longer. And so we didn't know what was going to happen, but then, 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 you know, it's like with this joke that goes up and down, and, and, and then the fine print of that declaration came out, and if you're married to a citizen and traveling with them, or if you're the parent of a U.S. citizen and traveling with them, well, you can come in if you've had your COVID test. I was expecting them to fail a COVID test just before their flight, right? That's the last opportunity to blow it all. And they studied up, and they passed. I told them, cheat sheet, the correct answer is negative. So they get here and they arrive, and I thought, you know, it's going to be good, like I said, that, that I, I don't be with them yet. They have just traveled from there, and I, I'll be with you this morning, and then I'll get to see them after that. But in the meantime, between arriving and after, after today, Kuda's uh, gotten sick. So now what do we do? Well, there's going to be, the complications continue. But I'd much rather it be complicated with them here. There will be trouble. We'll do what we can, but it won't be enough. And yet God will do much more than we expect. It may seem sometimes in the midst of the trouble, but he is, he is far off. But he who came is coming again. What do you fear? What are you worried about? It used to be that cancer was the big C word that gave us all pause. And now it's COVID. That's the news you don't want to hear from somebody. Or maybe it's a consequence. Some consequence out there from your own sin and shame that you're afraid is going to become known and fall upon you. Is he your peace? This one, born in Bethlehem, would be their peace. And he will be your peace. He is my peace, my sin, my shame. He has taken upon taken upon himself, he has died in my place. That is my hope. That is my confidence. And we come to this table in just a moment, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want that question before us. Is he your peace? Because that's what we celebrate here. If you didn't pick up one of the elements when you came in, but you want one, because you want to declare with us, yes, Jesus is my peace. He died in my place for my sin, for my shame. My confidence is in Him. In the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of all that is wrong and not right, He is right for me for me, for you. So at this table, we turn to that familiar passage as Paul shares this with the Corinthian church. He says that I received from the Lord. Oh, there's the gospel in a little nutshell. I received from the Lord 
that I also passed on to you. We give it away to somebody else. How that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, oh, let's pause there. Let's do that. Let's again just say, thank you, God, for the true bread who came down from heaven and gave his life for the world. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the one born in Bethlehem, for the one who will be great, the one who comes to rule and reign, the one that perhaps the Magi hoped in as well, the one whom our faith and confidence is in, Jesus, our Savior and coming King. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you that Jesus willingly humbled himself in our place, that he might take us and raise us up to his place with him as his own, as your own, as children of God. Father, thank you for that. Thank you that simply by trusting him, by believing in Jesus, who died for us and rose again, that we have peace with you. No more guilt. No more shame. But forgiveness in Jesus' name. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so our Lord, he took the bread, and he broke it and said, this is my body, given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, after supper, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. If that's true for you, if you believe that Jesus indeed gave his life for the forgiveness of your sin, then take and drink in remembrance, grateful remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for Jesus our Savior. We thank you for that night when it seemed in the garden, in the arrest, in the trials, in the crucifixion, that God was not near. And yet, Sunday was just around the corner. Father, give us comfort and courage by your Spirit to wait for your day. And while we wait for it, trusting Jesus as our peace, Lord, to share him like we would pass this cup to share him with people around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.